Christopher Rufo is with us again after two years, I believe. He is a documentary filmmaker, a cultural critic of, of actually national note at this point, and a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, though he lives across the country in the Pacific Northwest. His new book is America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. That's our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Rufo. It's great to be with you. First, a personal question. You're involved in many things, such as advising governors on cultural education legislation, serving as trustee at New College, uh, where, where, where I am as well, and doing investigative work on DEI, astonishing investigative work on, on CRT and DEI in, in, in the schools, the shenanigans in the government, in schools, in corporations as well. One wonders, where do you find, carve out the time to write a book that is actually deeply researched? It, it has a strong historical angle. It's just not just, it's not just about current affairs. That's one of the points. Uh, uh, when do you write in your day? Do you reserve a couple hours? Yeah, absolutely. My my schedule writing this book was was typically uh, I, I reserved about five hours a day um, at the at the in the morning through the early afternoon. Try to do appointments at the end of the day or maybe one call in, in the very beginning of the day. And so um, it, it was kind of interesting as I was doing all of the reporting on critical race theory and gender ideology and DEI um, that was gaining a lot of national uh, attention. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, kind of silently and quietly, I was spending actually the most most of my time uh, writing this book, and so um, it, it's 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 a balance, and and you gotta kind of sneak in sneak in where you can. But this was the, something that I really wanted to do, and and taking some of the reporting, and then going you know many layers deeper to show people the genealogy of these ideas, right? So that that when they read the book, they can see the news in a totally new light. You actually state the book's purpose as, in effect, quote, to understand the ideology that drives the politics of the modern left. And that's that, that deeper dive. Going back the decades, you know, 50 years, more, uh, that did you find that the deeper dive was, was really becoming necessary as these issues were becoming more controversial, that again, the, the, the longer view, the deeper picture was missing. And that, that, that's something you would aim to restore. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, you know, con conservative uh, writers and historians have tackled um, many of these trends. Uh, uh, but I think that it was time for really an update. And so there were some good books that had been written in the 90s about the early stages of the long march of the institutions, about the threat that it posed, about the rise of uh, kind of grievance departments within academia. Um, but but it, it was really, I think, time after George Floyd, after these programs seemingly, seemingly came to dominate all of our institutions, uh, it, it was time for really an update. And so I, I don't claim that this is a se totally secret history or I was the first uh, to tackle this yeah. subject. Um, you know, it, it was building on a lot of great work from the past, but it, it looked at it in a new light and then really connected it um, to the to the current moment when it was not just humanities departments that were under siege. But in fact, it was all of our culture making and knowledge forming institutions uh, from government to, uh, you know, academia to schools through corporate HR departments. Um, it had become this great synthesis of ideology within American life. And that to me was new. Uh, people felt it after George Floyd, uh, but people did not know how to describe it or how to understand the ideology or 
or or how to kind of trace it back and understand where it came from? Uh, tracing the roots gets us to some fundamental principles. You identify the, quote, spirit of left-wing revolution as the, quote, sacrifice of the human being to ideology. Uh, you discuss that in the context of recounting the story of Angela Davis, in fact. But what, what, what is that, the, the, the sacrifice of the individual, of the human being to ideology? How does that work? Well, it, it, in a number of ways. I mean, in a physical and visceral way, uh, you know, left-wing revolutionaries uh, fr from, from the beginning uh, have always been willing to sacrifice uh, in, in individual lives, to sacrifice innocent lives, to sacrifice the lives of the enemies um, uh, for their revolution. That is the price that must be paid. But in a more fundamental sense, what happens uh, life under left-wing ideology is the sacrifice of the conception of human nature that we've had, uh, you know, of course, with changes since uh, the classical period. And so uh, in the history of the West, we've had this idea of a fixed, unchanging, fundamental human nature. Um, there's been obviously, you know, wide debates about what that exactly means, but the concept was, uh, was really fixed. The concept was um, a kind of an object uh, uh, that had some permanence. And uh, in, in, in beginning with Marx and then going through, of course, you know, Angela Davis and, and the, the, the kind of neo-Marxist in, in the United States and Europe, they wanted to sacrifice the idea altogether to say that there's no such thing as human nature. Human, the concept of human nature is a kind of Western capitalist patriarchal concept that maintains oppression and domination. And in fact, man is infinitely flexible, infinitely plastic, infinitely changeable. And we can actually mold the human being and change human nature down to its biology through the application of revolutionary ideology. And so um, what happens in practice is that, uh, you know, they find out very quickly that, well, you know, this is it's not so easy to change uh, all of human beings and, 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 and obliterate their nature in pursuit of ideology. And actually, you get a tremendous carnage as a result. You, you, you get a kind of deformation of, of man. And that's what I think is the ultimate arc in the book is that um, there's dissatisfaction, there's injustice, much of which is real, much of which is not made up. These people all witnessed or endured true suffering, uh, true injustice. But when you actually try to solve that through the application of ideology, you get oftentimes a situation that is in some ways worse uh, than what they were fighting against. It's a big irony. It's a big tragic reversal. You have compelling profiles of these people going back to the 60s and the, the revolutionary fervor of them, Angela Davis, uh, Herbert Marcuse, Rap Brown. That's a name I remember from my youth. I hadn't heard that in, in a long time. I, I wonder how many, I wonder how many, how many millennials uh, or even Gen Xers uh, recognize that name. Bernadine Dorn, uh, who, who sort of was revived during the early Obama years because she was a colleague of, uh, or a, a, an associate of, of his yeah. back in Chicago with, uh, with her husband. Uh, other revolutionaries and how, what, what you said a moment ago, they find it's just not that easy. The revolution is, 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 not, is, not, is not progressing the way we thought and that that leads to a slogan, right, that you cite, burn it all down, right? We just destroy the whole system. Uh, what did they think would follow the destruction? 
I mean, did, did they think that they were going to be rebuilders? It, it, that is the, the crucial question. And, and I think that it really even goes back to the ultimate uh, intellectual authority and someone whom I don't spend a ton of time addressing in the book because it's, it's from the 19th century. But if you look at Marx, Marx has a utopian a kind of religious impulse. It's a secular impulse, but it's a utopian impulse. Um, and, but, but he never really describes what it would be. It, it's kind of this fantasy. You wake up, you hunt, you fish, you recite poetry, uh, and the machines take care of your material existence. It's this uh, almost kind of children's story of what happens after the revolution. Um, uh, but, but, you know, we, we've seen it before. I mean, even in Marx's time, you had the Paris Commune, which I think was the inspiration or, or really the analogy for the, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle during George Floyd. And, right. and you know, th- these things, when they seize authority, when they eject the kind of traditional structures, when they go for their utopian community ventures, it, it, it collapses almost immediately. And so there, there are these precursors, but the, the radicals in the 70s and, 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 and in some sense the radicals today um, have a critical difference. In the 70s, they thought they were going to destroy the system, take it over, and have a Marxist-Leninist utopia. And they'll you know, execute their opponents, they'll re-educate the, the citizens, and, and, and somehow it will be great. The radicals today actually um, have lowered their ambitions. The radicals today, the critical race theorists, the, the DEI bureaucrats, they know that they could not truly destroy the system and take over the system or replace the system. They know that their, their, their existence is totally dependent on the system. And so what they have, uh, have figured out is that they have a parasitic relationship with existing institutions. They can you know, feather their beds. They can collect their paycheck. They can play act as radicals, as bureaucrats, as tenured uh, academics, as you know, HR managers. But they're much more tentative. They don't actually want to burn down the system. And I think they're actually uncomfortable with how far things went in 2020 when they were literally burning down city blocks um, hmm. because they, they, they use that tactic not to destroy the system. They use that tactic just to extract rents. Um, huh. What we have now is a revolution of cynicism. Um, it, 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 it is not a revolution of idealism as it was in the 70s. And so I'm of this mind where – in some ways, uh, not always, but in some ways, I'm more sympathetic to the revolutionaries of the 1970s because they were authentically committed. They were willing to sacrifice their, their, their everything, uh, and they were idealistic in their conception of revolution. What we have now is this simulacrum uh, uh, that, is, that is totally molded by cynicism, careerism, um, uh, a kind of emptiness. Uh, that, 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 that is drained of all the early idealism. And, and in that way, I think that it is in some ways more contemptible uh, than, than an Angela Davis or even a you know, maniac like H. Rep. Brown. Yeah, I think that's the, the title of the next short piece, A Revolution of Cynicism. It's a good one. Yeah, it's a good one, Christopher. Uh, what, what, again, one of the values of the book is you dig into these personalities and you recover one, uh, the, the portrait of Marcuse. Uh, there's a you know fascinating character and a brilliant rhetorician. I, I think that that essay on repressive tolerance is rhetorically absolutely first rate, uh, uh, while 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 being morally uh, morally repugnant. But you find a very curious source of a lot of the DEI practices, the training sessions, the orientations. 
back in the 70s, uh, somehow connected to Herbert Marcuse. Who was this person? <laughs> yeah, this was one of the things when I found it in, in the research, just astonished me. And so Herbert Marcuse, I think, is known in, in political circles as the father of the new left, the father of repressive tolerance, the father of uh, kind of using the, the academy as a revolutionary base. Um, but his third wife, who was some 40 years his junior, one of his doctoral students uh, at, at the time uh, or earlier on in, in, their, in their life together, she took uh, uh, Marcuse's kind of hardcore academic uh, Marxist ideology and then devised training sessions in, uh, you know, down in, in, in San Diego and then in Berkeley, California, this kind of, and what she did, this synthesis of hardcore academic Marxism, neo-Marxism, and new age California consciousness training. She brought those two things together and then was really the first pioneer of anti-racism training, uh, in racial sensitivity training, diversity and inclusion training. Um, but from the very beginning, she was the first person to really do this for companies. Um, from the very beginning, she saw her work as reshaping consciousness of individuals within institutions and then bringing them revolutionary ideology packaged as kind of racial sensitivity training. And so uh, this to me was just astonishing. Hmm. Um, the roots of our, of our sensitivity training, the roots of DEI are thoroughly saturated with Marxist ideology. Uh, Erica Sherover Marcuse, the woman who did this, um, did her dissertation on Marx. I mean, she, she, was, she was not um, this kind of low-level grifter that you see today, but she was actually, in fact, a pretty substantive uh, academic and, and, and totally clear in what she was trying to do. California New Age practice uh, you know, infused with neo-Marxist ideology. Marcuse dies in 1979. You know this. Do we know what happened to her? Did she continue the work? She did. Yeah, she became a kind of fixture in left wing circles. And uh, she has done she, she, she published some of these trainings um, uh, that are available on various websites. You can still find them. Um, and, you know, she she had become kind of a fixture in the California leftist radical circles. She made a made a name for herself uh, doing these programs. And and, you know, if you actually look at the, the substance of her programs, her teaching, um, you know, they're almost identical. Um, you know, fast forward 40 years, they're almost identical to so many of the trainings that I exposed in yeah. institutions and schools in 2020, 2021. Uh, and so th they're, they're little changed. I mean, she really had set the basic patterns and pedagogy and content of anti-racism training way back in the early 1980s, uh, you know, really the mid-1970s through the early 1980s. Um, and she kind of, you know, made her way through kind of on the margins in a sense, uh, uh, doing this lonely work uh, with other radicals and people that you know. I mean, you know, you went to UCLA, you know the, the kind of type that would kind of hang out in Topanga Canyon and do, you know, seances and uh, trainings. Yeah. Um, but, we we, but we had one we, we had one professor at UCLA, uh, very smart guy, uh, but we called him the Malibu Marxist because yeah. he was hard Marx, but boy, he had a nice pad up there in the Malibu Hills. Yeah, it, you know, and I lived you know up in Topanga Canyon for for, for a year in my twenties and loved it, and and so yeah. I know the culture, and, and in some ways I'm I, I like the culture and I'm attracted to the culture, um, but. It, to, the, to the extent that it is uh, kind of in its proper place. But what's happened is that that culture of Malibu Marxism 
has now taken over a governing function of our institutions. And it doesn't actually work that way. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's endearing. It's kind of uh, a kind of cultural curiosity when it's Erica Sherover Marcuse doing it with her friends in, in, in East Oakland or, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, North Oakland or Berkeley. But it's one thing when our federal government is operated on the principles of Malibu Marxism. It, it, it doesn't work. It's not functional. Uh, and so we have an imbalance. And, and I think that, you, look, uh, kind of that culture will always be with us. It's part of American culture. Um, it should be afforded a, a, a kind of place to, to, to be, to, 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 to be expressed and, and to be understood. But um, it, 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 it is incapable of governing large institutions. That's mm-hmm. not its function. That's not its proper place. And so uh, as such, I think that it is it's quite amazing. I wonder if, you know, Erica Marcuse and Herbert Marcuse, if they saw uh, what's happened today, if they saw their ideas actually as uh, in a position of power, sometimes I do wonder what would they think? Uh, you know, h- how would they interpret it? And, and would they be disappointed? And I actually think that the, the elder Marcuse, uh, Herbert Marcuse, I, I think he would be in in in, in one sense fascinated, but also somewhat disgusted about what's happened to his ideas. Because you have to remember, Marcuse, I don't cover this in the book, but Marcuse was um, a great defender of Western culture, Western yes. high culture. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was actually, he found the, the kind of dirty hippies, uh, uh, he found them disgusting. Uh, uh, he found them anti-intellectual. Uh, right. He found them to be know-nothings. He found them to have no discipline. He found them to be enemies of high culture. Uh, and so if, if, if you had an encounter, let's say an imaginary encounter between Herbert Marcuse and Ibram Kendi, mm. um, I, I, I mean, I think, he, I think Marcuse would be, would be disgusted that this is where his ideas ended up. You know, Christopher, I, I always, you know, I was a liberal for a long time, but when I became a conservative, I, I would be happy to have a genuine Marxist in the office next door because genuine Marxists were hardcore when it said, you got to do your homework. You got to know your marks, of course, chapter and verse, but you got to know your politics, your history, your religion, your 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 literature. You you they they were people of the book. And uh yes. the fake marxists, you know, they're not. They're not. Uh so but you <laughs> know you, right. you you say in the book that the capture of the universities is somewhat held as a model for bigger takeovers in American society. Now, y- your work you become something of a, a clearinghouse for whistleblowers who send you materials on some of the stuff that, that goes on inside the, the brainwashing sessions, we'll call them, uh, inside human resources, in, in academia, in government as well. Uh, let me jump ahead. Uh, you do discuss this. How do radicals get power within, within a government agency? How do they do it? Yeah, I, I mean, well, there's there's a couple different models. There's the old model. If you look at the uh, kind of during the New Deal period uh, or during the kind of uh, 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 fight, the, the time when the United States and the Soviets were in, were in this existential battle, you had uh, kind of Marxist uh, infiltrators. Uh, you know, you had James Burnham, the great author, exposing this, what he called the web of subversion. That's the old model. The new model is actually quite different. The new model is much more akin to what Erica Marcuse did. They come in as contractors. They come in laterally through the bureaucracy, um, uh, running HR departments, um, uh, and and they also come in uh, uh, in kind of middle management, where they can control the manners and mores and the culture of institutions. 
they come in in places and companies, for example, that are uh, cost centers rather than profit centers um, because they, they are not oriented towards uh, production of goods and services or profitability. They're oriented towards the control of culture. Um, they also come in on, on positions where they're ostensibly managing civil rights concerns. Um, so, you know, Title IX coordinators, you know, Title VI uh, administrators, yep. Title VII, whatever it might be, uh, depending on the institution. And so they, they come in in these bureaucratic positions that are uh, part of the, the, the kind of cost of doing business. But then what they do, and really this is the core of their power, is they use uh, techniques of coercion, manipulation, and persuasion to change the cultural perceptions within these institutions. It's everything from here is the words you can no longer use. You can't say uh, blacklist and whitelist uh, because that's racist. Uh, uh, you can't, uh, you know, you, you, you have to use these, you know, personal pronouns because this is the new uh, etiquette, um, you know, kind of trivialities of language in some ways, all the way to some things that are more substantive. You have to be re-educated along the lines of anti-racism. You have to celebrate this holiday, uh, 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 celebrating these, uh, you know, sexual identities or gender identities. And so they create these little fiefdoms of culture that are commissar-style positions, uh, and then they, they use uh, the, the, the techniques of manipulation, predominantly, uh, we can call them archetypally feminine strategies of manipulation, um, uh, uh, hectoring, bullying, um, uh, uh, kind of social pressure, ostracism, um, uh, uh, again, archetypally, uh, not, not, not always literally, um, to, 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 to basically force out ideas and cultural patterns uh, that are deemed bad and, and, and bring in ones that are deemed good. And so I always tell people, you know, why is it that the federal government will have a training program that says that all white people are uh, promoters of systemic racism and whiteness itself is a force of evil uh, and you have to be anti-racist and you have to promote these uh, left-wing social causes? That's treated as somehow natural and acceptable and inevitable, but you would never have a federal training on uh, how to uh, exercise your Second Amendment rights, uh, or how to be a good pro-life uh, activist, protecting uh, the equal uh, protection under the law for the right to life. Uh, those things would not even be considered. It, it's forbidden uh, to, to even become a concept in your mind. And people would be very uncomfortable if, for example, you, you hung a, a, a cross uh, in your office in the federal government. That would be frowned upon and, and, and likely uh, prevented. Um, but you can celebrate, let's say, your non-binary sexual identity, and you would actually accept everyone. You would expect everyone else to celebrate it uh, on your behalf, and so um, you would you would demand that. You would demand that, and and to not do that would be then you know pun a, a kind of opening for punishment. And so, in all of these ways, and and these are kind of just some small examples, but in all of these ways, this is how culture is shaped institutionally. And I think that um, if conservatives want to be successful, we actually have to break that habit and break that expectation. Uh, and and, and it, it's going to cause conflict. It's going to cause some uh, pain. It's going to cause some hysteria. But we have to break it so that, um, you know, in, let's say, a red state like uh, Texas, let's say, uh, you know, the, the, the conservative culture of the people is actually the uh, dominant culture or public orthodoxy of the institutions. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a violation of John Stuart Mill uh, to say that, uh, 
Actually, the majority culture of the people in a democratic republic should be reflected as the majority culture of their institutions uh, in the public sphere. Yeah. I, I want to make sure we get to uh, uh, more more items in the book, especially this uh, as we as we come to the end. Uh, you're you're in the Seattle area and you speak of the summer, the George Floyd summer of 2020, and you call Seattle ground zero. What did you see there? Did you did you go witness things firsthand? What was happening up there? Yeah, I, I, I did. Yeah, I, I made my my kind of start in journalism and politics, working on uh, as a as a journalist and 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 doing some policy work in Seattle, where I was living at the time. Um, I, I now live just outside of Seattle, and so yeah, I, I went down to Seattle during that uh, summer of COVID and George Floyd and riots and the autonomous zone. Um, and then I did re- a series of reports about their efforts to dismantle the criminal justice system, uh, to, to close down uh, the largest uh, jail, um, to, to decriminalize uh, everything from drug addiction to public camping to shoplifting um, to, to uh, kind of nonviolent crimes and even some violent crimes uh, in, es- in effect. Uh, but but you know, I, I think Seattle was really the symbol of uh, life under left-wing ideology at, at its furthest. Um, the, the city government made great strides. And I think one, one, one moment that I caught uh, 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 as an observer really, really summarized it for me. Um, obviously, the CHAZ, the autonomous zone, was the kind of this big media spectacle. But there was another moment that was really important prior to the CHAZ. Uh, left-wing protesters, including Antifa and Black Lives Matter uh, militants, had laid siege to the East Precinct building in the Capitol Hill neighborhood, the very famous left-wing neighborhood in Seattle. The, the police had barricaded uh, uh, the, the, the precinct in order to protect it. They were manning the barricades like soldiers in the trenches of World War I. It was very uh, primitive. Um, and the city, a majority or, or rather a, a plurality of city council members as, as the uh, BLM and Antifa protesters were hurling rocks, were trying to hit them with batons, were throwing you know, back tear gas, um, and, and were really, I mean, at the barricades in a very French Revolution kind of feeling, the authorities, the elected city council members, um, were not on the side of the police uh, protecting. They actually uh, entered the protest with the protesters on the outside of the barricade, as they were launching projectiles uh, uh, towards the police and towards a symbol of authority. And so you have this amazing inversion in which the elected authorities, and they're the boss, they are, these are the, the, the kind of bosses, the, uh, the authorities over the police, have sided with the mob against the police and against the authority, against their own authority. And so you had this amazing inversion where our left-wing political leaders are manning the barricades against their own authority. Um, uh, I think without even realizing it, because the habits of left-wing radicalism and, and, you know, supposed kind of outsider agitation are so embedded in their thinking. They didn't even know that they were, in a sense, uh, uh, protesting and, and, and supporting the violence against themselves symbolically. I, I thought, for me, that was the perfect symbol. It's like the abdication of authority in toto. I mean, completely. Uh, and, and I think that that's really what, what you see. You see people who should be uh, upholding the institutions actually just cheering on the destruction of those institutions. Yeah. There's much more in the book. 
discussions of the LGBTQ uh, uh, rise, a rise of a strong sexual component to the left, which which certainly wasn't wasn't as prominent in, in in the old left. But for now, the new book is America's Cultural Revolution: How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. Christopher Rufo, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Mm-hmm.